0: Friends, in our Lenten sermon series, Look to Jesus, we're focusing on Jesus' I Am statements in John's Gospel to learn more about the one we call the Christ or Messiah. The very heart of the Christian faith is God's decision to enter human history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, whom we trust and worship as God's one-of-a-kind Son and our Savior. Jesus' redeeming work includes the work of God the Creator as its presupposition and the work of the Holy Spirit as its consequence. 20th century theologian Karl Barth writes of Jesus Christ, the whole work of God lives and moves in this one person. Well, so far in our series, we've explored three I Am statements from Jesus that use a predicate nominative. I'm the light of the world, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the bread of life. Today's I am statement appears without a predicate in an absolute form, which sounds incomplete, but really isn't. Here it is, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now remember, I am is the shortened form of God's personal name that was first revealed to Moses at the burning bush. A similar form, an absolute form of God's name, I am he, appears in Isaiah the prophet five times. Here's one of those instances from chapter 43. You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. Old Testament scholar John Oswald comments that instead of I am he, a more colloquial translation might be, I'm the one. That is, there's no one else in God's category. So this passage from Isaiah teaches that Yahweh is unique, the one, the only Savior, the one and living, true God. In the eighth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus uses the absolute form of the divine name for himself. Some verses before the text that Mary Rogers is going to read for us in a moment. Claiming to be, quote, from above, John told his hearers in verse 24, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Actually, the The NRSV translation reads, I am he. The he doesn't actually appear in the Greek text. So he really says, you'll die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Well, with that introduction, Mary Rogers is going to read for us today from John's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 51 through 59.
1: Today's scripture is from John 8, verses 51 to 59. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones and to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds.
0: This text opens with Jesus' surprising statement. Very truly, I tell you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. Jesus hearers misunderstand and think that Jesus is promising that his followers will live forever on this earthly plane. Instead, Jesus is speaking about spiritual, not physical death, escaping destruction after final judgment. That's his focus. Jesus will clarify that later in John's narrative in the story of Lazarus, when he promises Martha, those who believe in me, even though they die, and that's physical death, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's spiritual death or final destruction. Earlier in this long discourse, the crowd claimed to be children of Abraham. He is their most famous ancestor and the recipient of a whole series of covenant promises from God. And now later in the conversation, they argue that even the faithful Abraham perished. So they ask Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who do you claim to be? Jesus answers, your ancestor rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The crowd answers with a question, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? In Jesus' day, Fifty, the age fifty, sometimes signaled the beginning of old age. So the people are in essence saying to Jesus, you're still young, that is, not yet fifty. How could you possibly have seen Abraham? And then Jesus' famous reply, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, before Abraham came into being, I existed. He is asserting his pre-existent divinity. Notice that Jesus replies, I am, referencing the divine name, when he might have said, I was. Jesus, I am, would remind his hearers of God's name. So Jesus uses the same self-declaration, the same absolute form of the divine name, as does God the creator. New Testament scholar Herman Wachin comments, believing that he is simply I am without any predicates means that Jesus is not to be differentiated from the creator in terms of his person and his work. In his I am, the father and the son are inextricably linked together. Now many of Jesus' hearers then picked up stones to begin his execution, carrying out the punishment permitted by the book of Leviticus for blaspheming the name of the Lord. Although the writer does not explicitly express it here, on two other occasions, he records that people wanted to kill Jesus, quote, because you, being a human being, are making yourself God. That's the issue here, that Jesus is claiming to be preexistent and divine. That teaching occurs a number of places in John's gospel. In the call to worship we used earlier, from the prologue to John, We learned that <clears throat> pardon me. Christ is the preexistent divine word or message, the one through whom God created all things and who became flesh for us in the person of Jesus. In verse 18 of chapter 1, John ends the prologue with this surprising statement. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the father's heart who has made him known i think that's the only place in the entire new testament where that phrase god the only son is the way jesus is referred to jesus pre-existence is also taught or christ's pre-existence i should say is also taught in chapter 17 of John's Gospel, verse five, when Jesus prays, so now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. Now, in case you think that the concept of of Christ is preexistent and divine, who became flesh in the person of Jesus is unique to the Gospel of John among New Testament writers, it isn't. The letter to the Hebrews the Revelation to John, and passages from at least four of Paul's letters teach the pre-existence of the divine Christ. Now, what difference does this make that a number of New Testament documents present Christ as pre-existent and divine? I want to mention two. First, that Christ's pre-existence with God before creation confronts us with the fact that God is the author and initiator of salvation, not human beings which means that salvation is a gift of God's grace, not our achievement. We call this revelation a Christology, that means just message or teaching about Christ, a Christology from above. It sees Jesus as the one God sent to redeem us, as suggested in John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. During our two-plus millennia of church history, some theologians have instead taught, not a Christology from above, that, that God sent Jesus to us had to be incarnate, but they view Jesus as the ideal human being whom God adopted and exalted to a place of honor and power. This means that Jesus somehow was an anomaly, an accident of history, who in his faith and piety and compassion revealed all of those amazing qualities, and then having seen Jesus' meritorious lifestyle, God decided to adopt him. Well, that's a Christology from below. Instead, throughout John's Gospel, we discover a Christology from above, that Jesus is one whom God sent to redeem us. John says that the beginning of his good news document uh, when he proclaims Christ as the preexistent word of God, who became incarnate in the person of Jesus. And in so doing, John gives God all the credit for the work of our salvation. Now, some in the Jewish crowd that day thought that being descendants of Abraham was enough perhaps to ensure that they had a special in with God and that they would be rewarded with the gift of life everlasting. In other words, some thought their Hebrew heritage would be sufficient to ensure their salvation. Some people think today that something that we do, whether it's being baptized or attending church or joining the church or acts of Christian service, provide that same assurance. The problem is that Christ alone is the source of our salvation and the only one worthy of our trust. This means that we proclaim salvation as a gift of God's grace, not a human achievement, not something we can uh, manufacture or merit. Now, that doesn't mean our actions in response to Christ's grace in the form of repentance and service are unimportant, but they are not the foundation of our salvation. In other words, this text is encouraging us to trust in the preexistent divine Christ rather than ourselves for our salvation. Salvation is then the achievement of God in Christ, not something we have accomplished. Jesus invites us to trust him, As the pre existent one who is sent by God to offer us the gift of salvation. So that's number one. And second, this teaching means that the pre existent divine word who became incarnate in the crucified and risen Christ is worthy of our worship and service, along with God the Creator and the Holy Spirit. While John's gospel is probably one of the later. New Testament documents in terms of the date in which it was written, that does not mean there was a long period of development between Jesus' resurrection and his becoming an object of worship and devotion. Quite the opposite. The writings of the apostle Paul are by scholarly consensus considered the most ancient parts of our New Testament. And within Paul's letters, he quotes some early creeds or hymns which date to the very earliest years of the Christian movement, and one such passage is from Philippians chapter 2, which we use today as our assurance of forgiveness. It so closely identifies Christ with God the creator that a passage in praise of God, originally from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23, which reads, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, is repurposed to praise instead Again, not the creator, but the crucified and risen Christ. You see how radical that is? Something given God the creator is now offered to the risen Christ. In our day, friends, when so many things seem uncertain, the future of this deadly pandemic, the rate of unemployment and our economic future, our un certain political future as a republic and the uncertainty of our national quest for racial justice. One thing we can be certain about is Jesus Christ. Our faith assures us that Jesus was more than a good and righteous and compassionate person. He was all of that, but much more. He was and is the pre-existent one through whom God created all things, who became incarnate for us in the person of Jesus, And it was sent by our creator to redeem us. So we can take comfort in the fact that our salvation doesn't depend on an accident of history or on our own best efforts. But instead on God's plan to enter history in the person of Christ to redeem us from sin and death.